paragraph that we would have come to this morning to jump ahead to verse 15 of Luke 18. I will return, the Lord willing, uh, to Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and tax collector. But seeing it uh, just ahead in this chapter, I could not bear, uh, I couldn't resist the uh, opportunity to, to come to this text. I certainly couldn't leave it untouched for next week. So the incident about which we're uh, going to read today is recorded in three of the four Gospels, and it bears directly on what's just happened before our eyes, the baptism of Kira, and not only to her, but to all of the covenant children growing up uh, in our midst. It's a good day for us to pause and to consider how it is that Jesus views the children of the covenant, how he treats them, how he loves them and blesses them, and how we, therefore, must view and treat our own children in the church today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are reminded to this baptism, as we see ourselves in Kira's face, that we are helpless and needy and must be done for. And so we pray that you will do this for us, that you will send your spirit upon us, even as he already is here in our worship, to open our hearts, to grant us eyes of faith, to see and to receive marvelous things from your law. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 18, 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let the little children come to me and hinder them not. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. As many of his memorable remarks were, this remark about the infants of believers in Luke 18 was called forth from Christ by the misunderstanding, by the misbehavior of his disciples. Now you will notice that I said the infants of believers. Can this be known? After all, all that is actually said is that people were bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. Well, no doubt, unbelieving and spiritually disinterested parents did bring their children to Jesus during his public ministry. They came because their children were crippled or deaf or leprous or sick, and their parents wanted Jesus to heal them. They had sick children. Jesus had the cure. And such parents, it's true, were not at all interested in Jesus' message or the divine errand for which Jesus had come into the world or giving him their faith or giving him their worship as the Messiah of God. But that's not the impression we're given of these parents who brought their children on this particular occasion. These children were not sick. They were not brought to be healed. 
They were brought that Jesus might impart to them some spiritual blessing. They were brought precisely because their parents had some sense that Jesus of Nazareth was none other than the Prince of Life. They had faith in him as the one who dispenses covenant blessings. Indeed, it's precisely because these parents were seeking that true blessing for their children that Mark tells us in his account, the Lord became indignant with his disciples for attempting to shoo these folks with their children away. Here were folk in faith seeking God's own blessing for their children. And the disciples wanted to send them away. Well, thanks be to God that they did. Thanks be to God for the foolishness and the misunderstanding and the misbehavior of the disciples, for the Lord responded to it with these most memorable and wonderful words. Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now let there be no mistake on this point either. The kingdom of God in such a context means nothing less than salvation and eternal life. And were we to doubt that, all we'd have to do is look down the page a few lines in Luke's 18th chapter. The next chapter concerns a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus saying, Good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? And a few verses later, the Lord restates his question by saying, How hard it is for, a rich, uh, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the sphere of Christ's rule and his blessings, his salvation, not to put too fine a point on it. It is eternal life in the language of Jesus. And the Lord says it all belongs to these little ones whose parents brought them to the Lord that he might bless them. There's nothing surprising to us in all of that. Nothing at all. From the very beginning of God's revelation of salvation, the children of believers have been embraced with their parents in the salvation of God. Along the way, and many times over, the scripture says that the covenant belongs to these children. That uh, God's righteousness belongs to them. That God's spirit belongs to them. That his forgiveness belongs to them. Above all, God says, speaking of the children of his faithful people, he will be their God. The predicament of the unbeliever in the world, says the Apostle Paul, is that he is without God. Not so the believer's children. They are his. They belong to him. So it is an obedience to him that we bring our children to him, that he may bless them, that he may baptize them, place his mark upon them, that he may lay his claim on those who are rightfully, covenantally his Now notice this too, about all of this transaction. Who acts here in blessing the children? Who was doing the deed? Was it the parents? 
No, they simply brought the children. Was this a dedication service? Where men come and, and act, where mothers and fathers dedicated their children to God? Not at all. These parents came not to do, but to have their children done for. That God would bless their children and call them his own. Just so, we've seen this morning, yes, we heard a couple parents make vows. We made our own vows too. And may we keep them now, having made them in the presence of God himself. But as far as this morning's baptismal transaction is concerned, there are two parties. God and Kira. And here in the presence of the Lord, the parents merely handed over their child to Jesus. In both this context and in in that one, he it was who took them in his arms and blessed them. They got to watch, but the transaction was entirely between Jesus and these children. I've already made the point that what Jesus did for them was not a mere wish, not the well-wishing of a local rabbi, you know, hope things go well and here's some nice words for you. This is divine blessing. He didn't speak just some nice words over them. He proclaimed the benediction of peace and of life, of salvation on these covenant children, just as surely as he does over the children of believers today when he meets them in baptism. Now, all of this, I think, in all of this, we find at least two very important lessons for ourselves. One of them has to do with our relationship with the covenant children growing up in this church family and in your individual families, and the other having to do with our own relationship to the Lord. First, consider how we shall treat these covenant children. These children growing up among us in our church family and in our individual families. Think about this. What Jesus did here was really radical for his particular day. I mean, the disciples were much more a product of their own day than they cared to admit, and we much more of ours than we cared to admit. Children in their culture were not viewed very uh, highly. Um, They were unimportant, they were insignificant, they were even a nuisance until they were grown. Infanticide was not unknown in that day because of the very low view that was taken of children. Jesus, on the other hand, especially when it came to the children of believers, opened his arms to them to receive the little children, even, as Luke points out so precisely, infants of believers. He treated the little people in the kingdom of God with big esteem. Precisely because that is who they are, people of the kingdom of God. And they were to be treated the way they were for who they were. Here we will do very well to imitate our Savior, my brothers and sisters, in the way that we consider and the way that we treat our own covenant children. It's not uncommon among people who care very deeply about matters of salvation and of eternal life 
who really want the best for their children. I mean well-intentioned, earnest Christian parents in their earnestness to be carried into patterns of parenting that are not only not Christ-like, but have actually proven to be of disastrous consequence for the church's children. What I mean are parents and entire churches, entire traditions that treat their children the way that they consider those who are outside of the church as wicked people, as unbelievers outside of the church and who must remain outside of the church until sometime they somehow prove that they should be admitted into the church. Practically speaking, that often translates into parents who raise their children, telling them regularly, earnestly, that they're unbelievers and responding to their protestations of faith with reminders that their lives, little junior, just aren't producing the kind of fruit that we parents want to see to prove your faith. Vipers in diapers is the way the view has been described. People who insist first and foremost that their children are not Christians, not in the kingdom of God, not saved, and not to be treated as anything other than unbelievers. I witnessed this firsthand. Such treatment at a funeral of all places where a father, an earnest Christian father, grieving the loss of his son in a tragic accident, accident, turning, standing in the pulpit of the church, making his speech, turning to his little surviving daughter on the front row of that church and proclaiming before the whole congregation, with her listening there to this, that he was relieved that it was her big brother who died and not she, because she was not yet, in his opinion, a Christian and therefore would not have gone to heaven. I was utterly flabbergasted. This holding of the church's children at arm's length from Jesus until they somehow demonstrate that they have changed from vipers in diapers to fruit-bearing converts, while I say maybe well-intentioned, seems much more like the way the disciples were treating the children this day than the way Jesus was treating them and treats them still today. I have yet to see anywhere in the pages of Scripture the type of parenting that I saw demonstrated uh, at that funeral, the kind of parenting under which many of the church's children struggle, and I'll go ahead and say it, suffer today. The surest way, dear parents, to raise unbelievers is to raise them as unbelievers, to tell them they are unbelievers, to insist 
that they produce some kind of fruit, some kind of behavior to prove themselves worthy of the name Christian before you'll let them bear it, before you'll let them have it. There are plenty of exasperated children who grew up never being able to rise to that level. A level, by the way, to which those very parents don't even, wouldn't even dream of holding themselves before God. And who therefore finally these children shrug their shoulders in agreement with their parents and acknowledge to this very day that, well, it must really be true. I'm not a Christian after all. That kind of parenting, it seems to me, falls squarely under the Lord's warning here against hindering the little children. I realize that my funeral experience may have been an extreme example, though those of you who have been raised this way don't think so at all. The point is there are two ways to view the children of the church as unbelievers to be evangelized or as Christians to be nurtured. The Bible's own view is everywhere the latter. Paul addresses the children of believers in Ephesus as saints. Elsewhere, he tells us that the children of believers, of even one believer, are to be considered holy. Now, does that mean that every single one of uh, the children growing up in the church is necessarily regenerate? That is, born again, to use Jesus' language with uh, Nicodemus in that nighttime conversation? Well, not necessarily. But neither is every adult who professes faith in Christ. Neither are every single one of them regenerate. But we treat them as Christians, as people to be discipled and nurtured in the faith, treated with trust and not suspicion. All the more than those to whom Jesus says belongs the kingdom of God. The entire Bible really quite artlessly demonstrates how we should consider and therefore treat our covenant children, nurturing them in the faith, summoning them to faith and obedience and repentance, teaching them to pray from their earliest days, giving them a love for God's word by exercise and by example, and for God's house of worship, for singing the praises of God with the congregation of God, precisely because of who they are. They are children of God's covenant, loved by God, blessed by God, marked and set apart from the world by God at their baptism. And then as if there were no controversy at all over the point, the Bible presents one covenant child after another who from infancy had known the scriptures, who had trusted in their God from their mother's breasts, who were born again even before they were born, still in utero, regenerate by the Spirit, and all of that as the very plain, ordinary, everyday experience 
of generations upon generations, scores upon scores of the church's children. Treated in some the way Jesus still treats the children, even the infants of believers today, as those to whom the covenant, to whom the kingdom of God belongs. The second lesson has to do with our own salvation, our own relationship to the Lord. As we look at our covenant children, if we, uh, particularly the infant children, whom Jesus blesses, even Kira this morning, we hear Jesus say, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter therein. We will not enter the kingdom of God if we do not enter it the way Kira enters it. How does Kira enter it? Well, I can tell you how she doesn't. She doesn't enter the kingdom today by working really, really hard to earn her way into the kingdom. She can't raise a finger to work her way into heaven. She doesn't enter it by currying the favor of God or piling up a stack of good works. She has none. How does a person receive the kingdom as a child? Well, the same way an infant receives anything, by having it given freely to him, by being done for rather than by doing. Why must it be that way? Well, for the very simple and uncomplicated reason that an infant is helpless. And that's exactly what we are. We are helpless sinners. And that's the Bible's verdict. We are guilty and helpless to justify ourselves, even to begin to contribute to justifying ourselves with God. A difference, I suppose, between us adults, no, I'm sorry, oh, I just blew a grammar lesson, (laughs) between we adults and our children is that we don't think we're helpless, do we? We adults. In our pride, we actually think ourselves pretty far from helpless. We don't think of ourselves as dependent. We think of ourselves as independent. And that is woven into our warp and woof as fallen human beings. Yesterday, I prayed publicly for the Lord's blessing on a meal that I shared with a few dozen truckers. Just a few of whom, I think, would uh, be considered or even uh, confess themselves to be believers. Near the end of my prayer, I acknowledged that God is in control of all things. And no sooner had I said amen than the trucker next to me turned to me and said, let's go get our food. That's something we can control. (laughs) We're bent on controlling and on thinking that we are in control and that we are independent of anyone else. We can't stand to think of ourselves as anything but independent beings controlling our own destiny, masters of our own fate, people who have outgrown this childish dependence. Martin Luther, who loved his children dearly and understood this text very well, said in a semi-joking way, 
when exasperated by the behavior of his children. He said, Christ says we must become as little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. Dear God, this is too much. Have we got to become such idiots? (laughs) The answer is, of course we don't have to become such idiots. We are such idiots. Every one of us. That's the whole point. Sure, we adults have passed out of childhood in the sense that we don't need people to put a bottle to our face or wipe our little noses anymore. But in this matter of entering the kingdom of heaven, we might as well be babes in arms. Helpless, clueless, dependent, uncaring, unconcerned. We're no more able to bridge that chasm, begin to bridge that chasm that separates us from God, then an infant is able to go fill out a job application and take a job driving a truck to make a living. St. Augustine said that infant baptism provides a perfect picture of what salvation is and how salvation comes to us. The baby doesn't walk into church and demand to be baptized. He's carried in. She is helpless. She is done for rather than doing something, doing anything for that matter. So it is with anyone who would come into the kingdom of heaven. He must be carried like an infant in God's arms. True Christians, looking back on the work of God in their lives, know that this is so. They see themselves for what they are when they see the helpless infant who is baptized, upon whose head is sprinkled the water that signifies and seals the cleansing from sin that comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They see themselves, I say, for what they are, helpless sinners Saved solely by God's grace. That's precisely how we are and must be like, Jesus says, these children whom Jesus invited to his arms to bless them. We in ourselves can do nothing. It must be Jesus. It must be Jesus only brings us, carries us into the kingdom of heaven. Amen.